This is Wayne Jernell, editor of Theory and Research in Social Education, and this episode of Visions of Education features a TRSC published author. Enjoy. You're listening to Visions of Education, a podcast where we take a look at big ideas in education from different perspectives. Hi, I'm Michael Milton, a high school teacher from Massachusetts. And I'm Dan Kretka, an education professor in Texas. We're here to help bridge the gap between educators in the K-12 and those professors in higher ed. We hope this podcast will help bring those fuzzy ideas in education into focus. Dan, I got really excited when we were actually prepping this episode because I looked at our guests and I was like, oh my goodness, they've been here before. At least mm-hmm. most of them. I know we, and I know I'm jumping the gun with this because I just got really excited to welcome people back to our podcast. But it also made me realize, like, how have we covered Indigenous topics on our podcast so far? Well, I mean, you know, it's that's relative, right? We could always do more, but we have had some really good guests on our show. And so any, if anyone's like a new listener, I think, I don't know, I've been affected by a lot of the guests we've had on. So I, we do on our website. I don't know if we ever tell people this. We have keywords on our website. So if you go and look at our keywords, one of them is Indigenous Studies. And if you click on that, you can find all of our Indigenous episodes. And so, for example, can I walk through some of the ones we've had on before, Michael? Yeah, I'm very excited to do that. Yeah, absolutely. This is our Visions of Education Indigenous Syllabus, if I could say it that way, right? So our most recent episode we had, which you probably remember, was 171 not too long ago. We had Alexis Walker, who is one of our students at UNT. She's a citizen of the Chickasaw Nation. And she was able to talk about her journey as an educator. And we're actually hoping to have more episodes about, you know, teachers and students and, and leaders from different nations to kind of learn more specific you know, stories about indigenous nationhood and contemporary issues and the way it's taught in social studies. So the next one I'll go back to is episode 137. We had teaching difficult histories of Indian residential schools with photographs with James Miles. If you remember that one, right? We talked a lot about photography and the way that that was taught in schools. Then if you go back a little bit, we're rewinding back a little bit. Episode 134, we had Christine Stanton on, and she talked about unsettling the settler self in social studies education, which was a bit of a different perspective, right? Because I think sometimes we focused on indigenous nations, indigenous people. But in this case, she talked about what it meant to be a settler. And her article that she shared with us was really helpful for me for that. Then you go back to episode 128, which this is one that's really helpful in my classroom in particular, an anti-colonial approach to civic education with Dr. Leilani Sibzalian. And the reason that was helpful is she had six orientations in that lesson that I've been using since then to help reflect on my own curriculum and help my students think about what they're seeing in their classrooms. And it's honestly been, you. I mean, you have to do other lessons with it, but it's been the most helpful framework for reflection and thinking about how we're doing. So that was another, that was one of my favorite ones because it just really helped me think through my curriculum. It was a good time. I hope we get to see her again. I know. I don't know if she'd come back on again. I mean, she's becoming a bigger deal. She wins like book awards and stuff from ARA these days. So it's, you know, we'll see. We also had Harper Keenan on who talked about indigenous counter stories on an elementary field trip. That was in episode 116. And that was really helpful, right? I mean, it combined a few issues, right? Talking about um, the ways we think about kind of the settler landscape and how we tell perspectives that are more grounded in indigenous, you know, perspectives and viewpoints. And so we, we need to have Harper Keenan back doing so much incredible work that we need to talk about. Then in episode 195, Affirming Indigenous Sovereignty, we had not only Sarah Shear, but Leilani Sibzalian again, 
you know, I mean, she kind of is going to take over this podcast at some point. I'm thinking. Yeah, and no, Lisa, I think we're actually just visions of Leilani. That's yes, that that might be the new name. And Lisa Brown Buchanan, who came on and they talked about one of their articles that they wrote in Social Studies and the Young Learner about a, a civics inquiry of about affirming indigenous sovereignty. And that was episode ninety five. That was 95. And then, uh, you know, the first episode we did addressing indigenous topics was, guess who's back again? Sarah Shear, who also might take over this podcast. What is it when somebody comes on like three to four times? We, I mean, I super that's... duper friend. I mean, we got to have a, a term for this. But Sarah talked about her article, which was which really has had a huge influence. I see cited by like native journalists sometimes. I've seen them reference her article that was in TRSC. And she taught that article focused on misrepresentations in U.S. history of indigenous nations. And I remember one of the big takeaways there is how, especially post-1900, you just don't see a lot of references in the curriculum. But hopefully, like... And that was back when we were a baby podcast. I know. We had just... 15 back in 2016. We didn't know what we were doing like now where we... No, there's no graphic. (laughs) It's like... uh, that's true. I, I need to go back and do that. I apologize to anyone who's listening. Are, are we were still on GeoCities, right? Our GeoCities website oh, at that yeah. point. Yeah. But so I think we've had a lot of episodes, but it's important to reflect about, are we really making changes, I think, in our curriculum and our classes and in our communities, right? To think about these indigenous topics. How is Massachusetts doing? Like, what, what, do you, what standards do you get, Michael? I mean, do you have something that you can work with and do, you know, quality uh, representations of indigenous nations and their histories in your classroom? Yeah, so I've actually just been thinking a lot about this, particularly as we're kind of prepping for the episode. And I revisited our new frameworks in Massachusetts. And I know that like in the third grade, they do focus on different native peoples in Massachusetts. They were there then and today. But one of the things that I found really interesting was in the US 2 curriculum, the US 2 is in the high school level. So is part of the civil rights, defending democracy, the Cold War and civil rights uh, move Cold War and Civil Rights Movement at, at home. So the, there's a couple different paths that teachers can take, and ideally they actually choose a smattering of it. But one of the things that they're asking students to look at, if they do choose this one, but I imagine you do some sort of jigsaw thing, is the movement to protect rights, self-determination, and sovereignty of Native peoples. Uh, looking at the Native, uh, the Indian Civil Rights Act of 1968, the American Indian Movement, the Wounded Knee Incident at the Pine Ridge Reservation in South Dakota, in looking at how the efforts from Native peoples groups to preserve Native cultures, gain federal and state recognition, and raise awareness of Native American history. So I thought that was interesting. So I don't teach US too, and so I wonder how that's going, to be honest with you. But I think that's a, an interesting, yeah, I was happy to see that in the standards. I would just like to see it in action. Like I would and like I, to see how teachers are doing in action. I just don't have to teach that. Yeah, I'd love to, and I'd love to know how they're doing it. I mean, in Texas too, we the standards don't always do a great job, right? One thing I think about is like, what's the larger picture? right? Like what's the larger narrative and the larger story? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it is the story of, right, a gr- of native groups, right? That's one of the things I think of, right? In Texas, we do that, especially like we talk about groups, which kind of is like leaving out a big part, which is nations. I don't know. I, we, I think we need to dive back in to, you know, talk about what teachers have, what standards they have to work with and what we need to do. Is that okay with you, Michael? Let's do it. So why don't we welcome back to the podcast, super best friend of the pod. Super best um, friend. Wow. Yeah, I just kind of went with there. I like it. Uh, Leilani Subzalian, Sarah Shear, and newcomer, and I'm guessing that he's going to be a very close and dear friend. The first of many. Jimmy Schneider, welcome, and welcome back, and welcome to Visions of Ed <laughs> podcast. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's good to be here. Why don't we just dive into it, getting to know who these folks are again, 
and then we'll have Jimmy go at the end. And Jimmy, you can introduce yourselves to the to the you know to our listeners. Why don't we start off and just introduce yourself, Leilani? Who are you? Again. Hi there. It's good to see you both. And thank you so much for having us back again. My name is Leilani Subzalian. I'm an assistant professor of Indigenous Studies and Education at the University of Oregon. I'm also the co-director of the Subsequatla Indigenous Teacher Education Program. And I'm really happy to be here. Hey, again, I feel like we should get badges when we like hit a certain threshold. Of, oh, that's a like, good idea. That would be We're super fun. Like, I got my badge. I'm Sarah Shear. Hi, everyone. Again, it's so great to be here and great to see everyone on the Zoom. I Last time I was here, I was working at a different institution. So now I'm calling in from the beautiful lands and waters of the Tulalip Nation. I live in North Seattle and I'm faculty at the University of Washington at Bothell. Welcome back. Hey, I'm Jimmy Snyder. I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Oregon in the Critical and Sociocultural Studies program, an education program. I'm a citizen of the Kickapoo tribe in Kansas. I am a former social studies teacher on the Navajo Nation, and I also taught at Kickapoo Nation School in Kansas, in my, my tribal community. And this, this academic PhD track is a, almost a second life for me. I, I've got 20 years of coaching high school and small college football, and working in tribal communities in different capacities. So I am honored for the invite. So thank you. So can you each tell us kind of like, how did this super group of super best friends come together? I mean, how did you all start working on a project together? And, and what are kind of the backgrounds that led into this work? So I guess I'll start because I kind of, I, I may have downplayed a little bit <laughs> the craziness that, ensues when you do a national study of k-12 social study standards and i'm just really glad jimmy and leilani are still my friends because <laughs> I mean, we, we were i mean we talk about curriculum all the time and we've done various other curriculum studies and you know i i led the the team that looked at the national study of the history standards and so just through our our friendship and our collaborations on other projects and just our, our interests and in particularly out here in, in Washington now with our since time memorial curriculum. And I'm sure Leilani will touch on the work that's going on in Oregon. You know, we, we kind of wanted to see what was going on the civics standards in relation to representations of native nationhood and tribal sovereignty. And I'll hand it off to my, my colleagues who I'm just really glad are still my friends since I roped them into this project. Yeah. Sarah definitely tricked us into mm -hmm. participating in this study and Jimmy I'm sorry that I got you involved. <laughs> yeah, we, you know, in Oregon, you know, in 2017, Senate Bill 13 Tribal History Shared History was passed in the state and this is a law that mandates uh, curriculum on tribal history and governance and sovereignty in all K-12 public schools in the state. And, you know, Dr. Shears study and collaboration on the history standards was crucial for that advocacy. And it was mentioned by numerous people who gave testimony. And so thinking about the impact that that study had, not only on this state, but then other states, you know, for Indigenous educators and allies to advocate for policy and curricular change in their state. When she proposed the idea, you know, we didn't know what we were getting into, 
but <laughs> we both, you know, I'll let Jimmy speak for himself, but we're thrilled to be part of something that might have a meaningful impact and change on native curriculum and initiatives in, in different contexts. Yeah, I, I was Leilani's graduate employee. So I was a research assistant the year that this study began. And in the early days, we were just getting our hands on the data. We, the data was really pushing back on us, you know, um, and we just went through the entire process of, of defining and redefining the boundaries of the study it is the part that I was mostly involved with. Organizing the data was a big part of the conversation for the, for the year because 50 states is it's no joke. It's a lot. <laughs> and, and not all states are equal. Some, some states were one click, a couple of reads, quick reads, and other states took a few days or a week. So you know, it, it, organizing all that. Well, and I, I hear you all talking about just the enormity of a study. And I think from the outside, I know for certainly before I got into like, you know, graduate school, started like learning about research, it doesn't seem like what you just look at the standards. But this wouldn't take that long, right, to go through the standards. And it, what I'm hearing from y'all is it did take some time and some effort and a lot of, of energy. But I know that, you know, you, you already referenced this and um, Dr. Shear, you'll be humble about this, but that 2015 study, I see cited like in popular press, right? I see cited on Twitter from people I don't know in presentations at conferences. And so the study I'm referencing is, which I can't believe this was 2015, where the pandemic has like made time go away in strange ways. But that study was called Manifesting Destiny, Representations of Indigenous People in K-12 U.S. History. And we shouldn't need that study to know that something was wrong with the curriculum, but it kind of showed people like, hey, there's something wrong. I mean, like really like got this mapping over it. And there's lots of different ways, I guess, to present this data. I mentioned earlier, right, a book everyone should should buy. I was, I was actually just grabbing it off my bookshelf, which is Indigenous Children's Survivance in Public Schools that Dr. Subzalian won awards from, from uh, AERA, which is very prestigious mm -hmm. and deserved. But the book is incredible because what it does is it really tells stories right, of how students and teachers um, navigate and experience, right, the ways that Indigenous students are represented and included or excluded from the decisions that are made in curriculum. And the story should, I feel like, be enough, but these studies give people a larger perspective on how things are doing. So without further ado, if you all are ready, like this huge project, let's talk about it. And so this study was just published in Theory and Research and Social Education. So congratulations. I'm sure getting a big study like that and having it finally published is very satisfying. And so this came out in 2021, so last year, and it's titled Standardizing Indigenous Erasure, a Tribal Crit and Quant Crit Analysis of K-12 U.S. Civics and Government Standards. All right. So tell us about this big project. <laughs> everyone's, everyone's, pointing at, everyone's pointing at me since it was since I was the person who reeled them into doing it. <laughs> so in, in, a very, in a parallel way to the history study, right, what we wanted to, to do was look at the representations of indigenous peoples and native nations and particularly issues around sovereignty and nationhood and treaties. And so we were working for a while as, as Jimmy was sharing about, you know, the particular, you know, codes or phrasings that we were, you know, going to take and then analyze. And one of the things that makes it really challenging as we've, as we've touched on is that every state organizes their standards 
in a slightly different way and sometimes drastically different way and sometimes in much more detail than others. So for example, California's social studies standards are almost 800 pages long. And so, so yeah, I can see Mike was like, really, it's like, a, it's a novel to go through California standards. And while some states will have civics and government, and we wanted to look specifically for standards that were identified as civics and government, while some states kind of Par- parcel all of their standards out by category. So they'll have a couple, pa- like here's the pages on civics and government. Here's the pages on geography. Here's the pages on history. Some states weave them through. So you have to start reading all of the standards to see where civics and government is labeled and identified, even within a U.S. history, in a, in a U.S. history standard. Yeah, California's got as you said that, I, I did a standard study, which maybe we'll discuss later. And somebody asked me the day, why didn't you include California? California. I'm like, I don't remember. And maybe I just blacked out when I looked at their standards. <laughs> so long. They're so long. So once we, you know, we, and we're doing, we're doing this, you know, in the midst of like me deciding to move across the continent. And then it takes over a year to do this kind of study anyway, but then we had moving, we had the pandemic and I just am so, so proud of us that we just stuck with it because we had to come up with, you know, what was the scope of the phrasings that we were looking for treaties, nationhood, sovereignty, and within, within some, within anything labeled civics and government, and then start doing it digitally. Whereas the group and the group that did the history study, we did it all on paper, which was a lot of printing. We did all of this digitally. So our Google, oh, one day we'll do screenshots of the Google folders because they're just, they're everywhere. But it, but that was kind of the genesis. And I'll hand it over to one of my collaborators if they want to pick up where I left off to kind of continue on with how we, how we were diving in. Yeah, I can just add that, you know, our study was anchored in tribal crit and quant crit. And so, you know, tribal critical race theory comes from Lumbee scholar, Dr. Brian Brayboy. And so we drew on the tenets of tribal crit, really just the first kind of four tenets that colonization is endemic to society, that policies against indigenous people are rooted in white supremacy, right? That indigenous people have political identities in addition to cultural and racial identities, and that indigenous people are seeking Uh, sovereignty, right? Struggles for self-determination and sovereignty and nationhood. And then we, as we were going through the study, decided to couple that with quantcrit. So quantcrit, you know, it really talks about the ways that quantitative research has this guise of neutrality, right? This authority, but really numbers are not neutral and race and racism can be embedded within uh, quantitative research. And also numbers can be used for social justice. So we really drew from that to say, you know, quant crit informed by tribal crit, numbers can be used for social justice and to support indigenous nationhood and sovereignty. And so we, we were drawn to that because we want people, as they did with Dr. Shear's study on the history standards, we want them to be able to have these numbers to kind of influence state policy. So when you look at our study, you know, numbers stick out. So some numbers stick out, you know, like sovereignty. Really, Indigenous studies scholars say sovereignty is the bedrock upon which 
any discussion of native reality should should be based. Um, that's the words of Shanina Lomawaima. And, you know, 75% of the standards fail to mention indigenous sovereignty at all, right? So on the one hand, you have indigenous nations and scholars talking about the necessity of indigenous sovereignty in public discourse and political discourse. And then you have the absence, a very big absence. And so we wanted to use numbers to kind of make that, that case, but then also couple it with qualitative data that looked at how indigenous nationhood and sovereignty were represented. And Michael in Massachusetts, one thing we found was that, you know, I mean, I guess we'll talk more about this in a second, like maybe some of the findings, but there were these explicit erasures, right? Times when states failed to mention indigenous nationhood or sovereignty at all. But then there are these subtle erasures. And in Massachusetts, one of the ways they engaged in that subtle erasure was by framing native nations as groups, right? As groups of people, which, which Dan had mm -hmm. mentioned earlier, rather than nations, right? And that's a discursive form of erasure. So we drew on Scott Lyons. He's an Ojibwe scholar who talks about rhetorical imperialism, right? So we had from, from kind of sovereigns to wards, he says, from nations to tribes, from treaties to agreements, all this language erodes tribal sovereignty and undermines indigenous nationhood. And Massachusetts did that. <laughs> Not to call out your state. No, it's okay. I was going to ask specifically about my state. So I appreciate <laughs> I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, and it, it sounds like a lot of states have a lot of work, right? So Massachusetts is, is joining the club of states that, that maybe need to do that. And it does seem like particularly troubling, like to, to talk about indigenous nations as groups is to completely disarm them of the political sovereignty aspect, like you're saying. And I just, I guess that's something like and when I was first a teacher, I just never would have thought of. And then once you see it, it, it just feels so violent, I guess, like it feels like such a continuation of the colonialism that's happened in this country. So, so, okay. So we've got quantitative methods, right. And our, I, I know not all of our listeners are going to, uh, you know, know all the theories or methodologies that are used here, but we have quantitative methods with also with qualitative methods when you did this study, but then also you're working through a lens uh, that builds off of critical race theory which of course, many people have heard those words, but maybe still don't understand them because it's usually not explained in any kind of context in the news. So, so what did you do with these ideas and methodologies? Like what, what, was, what was next? What did you find? So I'll, I'll kick it off because I think one of, the, one of the numbers that stands out for us in a number of ways and that sadly couples it with, the, you know, with the, one of the major pieces of the history study you know, is this placing of indigenous peoples and native nations in the distant past. So about in, in when we were looking at this study in particular around sovereignty and nationhood, about 40% of the standards that did include some aspect of sovereignty or nationhood, about 40% of those were in that pre-1900, very distant past context. So the civics and government standards are replicating in many ways that problematic narrative that the history standards are doing too, which is really erasing and defining that indigenous peoples are gone or, you know, and, and left to the pages of history when we know that is not at all the case. 
So it's, it's really problematic. And we also had about 14 states, including Pennsylvania, that did not include any references to indigenous peoples or native nations at all. And, you know, yeah, I, I see there's like mm-hmm. crinkling faces <laughs> here. Yeah, 14 states had zero mention of indigenous nationhood or sovereignty within their civics and government standards. Now, remember, in our study, we were looking only at civics and government standards, right? Mm-hmm. And it, when a, or civics and government strands specified within standards. So some states might have included indigenous nationhood and sovereignty within history standards, for example. But we were v- very much looking at whether and how indigenous nationhood and sovereignty as concepts were reflected within civics. And then of those 14 states that failed to mention indigenous nationhood or sovereignty at all, nine of those states have tribal nations located in their states. So, you know, that finding right there is really problematic because not only are those standards not reflecting the civic identities, the civic roles, the civic responsibilities of native kiddos in that state, but then it's also miseducating all students in those public schools about their roles and their responsibilities toward the tribal nations. And some of those states have, you know, like 15 nations in their state, and they're still not being mentioned at all. I'm going to, I have no problem calling the states out. So let me, let me just name them because I just pulled up the page. Yes. Uh, This is like a segment, like a shaming. We're going to shame these states into improving their standards. They need, they need need to do better. Delaware, Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, New Hampshire, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island, Virginia, and Wisconsin. Rhode Island? How many of those states have like indigenous, like, you know, words as part of their names of their states? I'm curious. I mean, it just like, I'm just trying to think how, how many layers deep this goes. And you don't have to give me a number on that. And (laughs) and mascots at their schools. Right. Kansas is the Kansas tribe. Pointing out states pointed pointedly like that brings to light the like what my mind goes to is the politics in the state between tribal state and federal governments to erase the Seminole tribe, for instance, in Florida from the state standards. If you go down there any political season, there are constant ads run by the Seminole tribe and anti-Seminole tribe politics because that is one of the more influential and, and lucrative tribes in the country. They, they own hard rock, for instance. So to erase them from the local politics is important for any oppressive dynamic. I think of where my tribe is in Kansas doesn't have a mention of tribal sovereignty. Very influential, the Potawatomi tribe, the Kickapoo tribe, and state government. And I, I just think of all the political nuances that go into the erasure. I think acknowledging tribal sovereignty in Florida would would be dangerous in settler colonialism because the tribe is already super influential. Seminoles are a great example. When I see Georgia on that list, I think of Cherokee versus Georgia, which is a a pivotal uh, Supreme Court case uh, as it pertains to tribal sovereignty, to teach tribal sovereignty, to even mention that word in that state, I think. It presents problems for, for settler society. And 
I'm sure we can just go down the list of the states that the, the, it's just all wrapped into one uh, conversation. So. I, I can't help but think of like Florida State, you know, so visibly using, you know, Seminole as their mascot, right? And I'm, I don't know if they still do the racist tomahawk chop thing that also the Atlanta baseball team and the Kansas City football teams do. But then to not have them, this, you know, Seminole Nation in their standards is, is, you know, I guess I shouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I'm really glad Jimmy brought that up. And he was really integral to drawing attention to the political context in these states as we were discussing whether or not nationhood was included. And, you know, one theory that informed our study comes from Shanina Lomawaima and Teresa McCarty, and it, it's called the safety zone. And the safety zone is this theory that helps you make sense of exactly what Jimmy just described, right? Like, why would some forms of Indigenous life be included in curriculum and other forms be disregarded? And sometimes people think that's the result of ignorance, right? People just lack information. But, you know, well, this theory really comes from their study of boarding schools and why why kids were allowed to, for example, set up little teepees in the yards in institutions that sought to explicitly eliminate indigenous difference, indigenous cultural difference. So why were some forms of culture allowed, right? And they theorized that it's because some were viewed as safe or innocuous and others were viewed as dangerous. And, and Jimmy drew attention to that word, right? Like really recognizing indigenous nationhood can, can be threatening, right? Whether it's state rights, federal rights, property rights. And so it's not really just always a matter of ignorance, right? It's concerted efforts. And actually, Danae scholar Cynthia Benali has a really good study on this, and I will link it in the show notes in the Journal of American Indian Education. And she was describing in Arizona uh, policy efforts to pass standards that specifically drew attention to tribal history and culture, but also nationhood and sovereignty. And when those different dimensions were discussed by legislators and in the state, ultimately the, it, the bill was stripped of tribal nationhood and sovereignty because they were viewed as too threatening a concept. So I'm, I'm really glad Jimmy drew attention to that. Folks get um, resentful. It can create a lot of resentment in, in some areas. And so I think, I think you probably named them all, but so what were the concepts that you were specifically looking for in these standards and, you know, analyzing? And then what were the ones that you, you, you looked at that maybe, you know, weren't there to see like, and, and cause right. Didn't you also do the other side of this, which is pretty interesting, not look for only what was there, but what wasn't there. Yeah, so some of the, the specific phrasings that we were looking for were, you know, indigenous nation or tribal nation, any of the kind of the phrasings around an indigenous nation or native nation, specifically nation, right? And that's where we get the talking about the states that were referencing indigenous peoples and their nations as groups, right? So, dis, so dismissing the nationhood aspect of that. We also were looking explicitly for the word treaty or treaties explicitly linked to native peoples and citizenship related to specifically linked to indigenous peoples. Those were the ex explicit like phrasings we were we were looking towards and also some of the, the legal 
aspects of the U.S. Native relationship, and it and it as Jimmy was talking about at the beginning of the the show, it was kind of all over the place at first because you don't really you have an idea of the the way you want to look for the explicit phrasings, but then once you get in there, you start to see that it's you know you have to be a little bit more expansive, but also tighten it up. So that was another aspect of, you know, when we were looking for those terminologies and also, right, sovereignty, right? When the phrase sovereignty is used explicitly within an indigenous context. And as an example of something that when when it's very subtle, but yet not subtle, is when a state such as Massachusetts says, you know, for students to learn, and this is pretty much every state, students will learn about local, state, and federal government. Well, we have a, we're missing, we're missing one, you know? So that was an example of something that we would flag as an erasure. Also, when, when folks look at the study and they're looking at the states, you know, two examples also to think about North Dakota and North Carolina, the majority of the explicit um, inclusions that they did have were in elective courses. So it leaves the question of, you know, how many students are actually getting to experience this, you know, not only in the elective class, but taking the elective class at all. So what states would you say are doing a, a better job than, than the others? If you were to give like a, you know, a, a high score, and again, it can not be a great high score. So we can, we can think about that a couple of ways. And I'll, I'll, I'll say one just in, you know, the state that I'm in. Washington had a significant number of inclusions, as well as a crosswalk of the state standards with our mandatory K-12 since time immemorial curriculum. So there was a, a very clear effort to link those together and ensure that across K-12 students would learn that the nations here and elsewhere on Turtle Island are sovereign nations and actually and learn and discuss the complexity of federal and state recognition of that sovereignty and those relationships and get into the politics of it. So Washington is an, is an example. Oklahoma actually also, I was just looking and peeped in the paper, Oklahoma had a, a, actually a significant number as well. I'll hand it over to Jimmy and Leilani if they want to include any other states. I, I do have to pause on Oklahoma for a second because it's, it was nice to read that they'd actually done better because I know that they hadn't historically. And, and Sarah even and I went to Oklahoma, right, to think about how indigenous histories were taught. And it wasn't a great experience. We literally like were exposed to anti-indigenous racism like directly from people, which was, again, maybe something that shouldn't be surprising. But, you know, I have the, probably the privilege of not having to think or experience that always. So I was at least, I'll take the little wins in a state where the governor is trying to erode a Supreme Court decision currently, the McGirt decision, and is like every day, you know, trying to fear monger the nation's having any political power. It is nice to know at least somebody got in there in the standards and did something right. We take the little, the little victories in Oklahoma. So it was at least nice to see those standards were better than they had been in the previous drafts. Well, I just think it's interesting too, because I'm, I'm sure that that Leilani and Jimmy will will want to expand more on this too. You know, there's, and we've talked about this too, as one of the challenges of doing a curriculum study is you don't, you don't know how they're being implemented in the classroom. 
So you could have a really nice set of standards, but if it's not happening in the classroom and not happening well, then it's a piece of paper. You know, that's, that's, a, that's even a struggle here, right? To help teachers get the training they need to rightfully implement since time immemorial. So I'm, I'm sure in, in many ways too, as we saw in Oklahoma, right? You can have some nice standards and then it all kind of falls apart or, or not depending on the classroom you go into. And I know Leilani's done done work with teachers too and has seen the whole gamut. Yeah, I think that, you know, points to an important limitation of studies of state standards, given the variance in how teachers and schools and districts adopt and implement standards. Just because a state has really quality standards doesn't mean that's translating into classroom practice. We had, you know, we featured Montana as a state that, you know, we, we drew f- attention to four states that, that did a good job. And by good job, we mean they drew attention to indigenous nationhood and sovereignty early and often throughout the K-12. So one subtle pattern of erasure that we saw was some states would talk about indigenous nationhood or sovereignty, but they would wait until sixth through 12th grade. Well, that kind of gives the impression that these concepts are too mature, right? Which is not true. Um, and also it kind of sediments in kids' minds that Native nations aren't here or aren't nations, and then that's now they have to learn about it later, right? So if Native people are only talked about historically or culturally in their K through five experience, which is very much the case when we look at elementary curriculum, and now they're supposed to take seriously Native nations as sovereign governments, right? But we talked about several states, so Oklahoma, Wyoming, Montana, and Washington. And Washington's actually a a really good example of, you know, some states have really high quality essential understandings. We drew attention to that in this study because Native educators and advocates have worked very hard to center the concepts and knowledge that they want everyone in those states to know. And and essential understandings are important too, because they usually come about through a process of tribal consultation, right? Where the nations in that state are having a say in the way they want to be represented within the standards and within curriculum. We tried in this study to draw attention to the importance of that while also showing if those standards don't also make their way into the everyday guiding documents that teachers draw on, then they can view, be viewed by teachers as extra and thus optional, right? And if it's optional, then it's forgettable. And so we were trying to advocate for this both and approach, which Washington has actually adopted. So they have since time immemorial curriculum and the guiding understandings for that, but they've also kind of crosswalked that curriculum and the standards in the social studies standards, which is one of the goals. But, you know, Montana for example, did a good job of including indigenous nationhood early and often, and so did New Mexico. But we also know in these states that Native youth have had really negative experiences of racism, right? And even filing lawsuits against schools and districts. Off of what you were just, the point you were making about the erasure in K through five, and then all of a sudden, um, indigenous people become political beings if it becomes as opposed to cultural and all of the subtle and not subtle education that K through five students get about indigenous people 
that are just othering and dehumanizing in a lot of ways. And then all of a sudden, your, your book, uh, Leilani, points that out a lot with the way that that happens in the classroom. And, and then all of a sudden, their tribes are supposed to be taken seriously. Teachers need to be aware of that. <laughs> that that's where the work is. You know, K through 12 teachers, not, not just once that pivot is made in the, in the curriculum in the state. And the, it, it's, it gets a little confusing sometimes because it, it, it's appealing when you see it in some of the, the six through 12. It looks like the jobs be getting done now. And that doesn't change what's already been done. It, it comes up in so many different ways too. And K through five. Students already know they have a framework for understanding Indigenous people by sixth grade. So we are working to unsettle that in addition to affirming sovereignty. Yeah. And you're making, I really appreciate the point you're making, Jimmy, because it's reminding me of, I think a really key aspect of our study is the erasure of indigenous nations within discussions of nationhood and governance and civics in general. So a repeated pattern was the rehearsal of local, state, and federal government. That was just a pattern that we have a whole table that kind of outlines the ways that government is reified through local, state, and national frameworks that undermines indigenous nationhood, right? And reify is really important, like as a concept, what that means is it takes something that is, you know, a concept and makes it real. So settler nationalism is never in question. Settler sovereignty is never questioned. It's rehearsed, repeated, and rehearsed as always having authority, right? Local, state, national. It's just that pattern is really problematic because what it does is it reproduces the idea that those are the only frames of reference for civic roles and responsibilities. And, and it undermines indigenous students who are citizens of their nations and it undermines the authority of indigenous nations. So that pattern was really problematic in our study. Yeah, and also sovereignty, right? The United States has sovereignty, France has sovereignty, Germany has sovereignty, you know, Britain has sovereignty, all these sovereign sovereignty, 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 sovereignties, but then so <laughs> many absences of native sovereignty here and that the United States wouldn't exist as a country had the native nations not recognized us as a nation at the end of the American insurrection. And I mean, revolution. And that's so important and it's not there. And so then you have Supreme court cases come up right now and students are like, what is this? And they have no context to understand that the United States has treaty relationships with sovereign nations within the borders of this country. Yeah, I've noticed like to the McGirt case, it's like a bewilderment, right? Like, what do you mean these nations like exist here? What does that mean? And it's like not even knowing where to start in those discussions because it seems like they haven't been exposed. But this just come to mind reflecting on the study. I don't want to do the study, but I think it would be very interesting to do the <laughs> 50 state kindergarten civic standards. Mm -hmm. And what jumped off the page to me is the, re the repetition of, um, it, it was about symbols of freedom, symbols of country, symbols of America in kindergarten. So uh, the American flag, police officers, firemen, even I think a couple of states had Eagle, 
like like the eagle as a symbol. Point being, it starts there. <laughs> Somebody needs to go through the 50 states of the kindergarten standards, and you could draw the direct line to a lot of the hostility and, and settler politics today amongst the adults. <laughs> it, it, you could just draw that line right to the early <laughs> conceptions of what government is. I think in the 90s, everything you needed to learn, uh, you learned in kindergarten. <laughs> Unfortunately, in the standards, that yeah, that may not that may not be a good thing. Uh, so th- this study, when when I was reading it, I, I found it really profound because it it like hits you on different levels, right? The the deliberate erasure that's happening of indigenous nationhood and sovereignty, and then the more and then that more subtle erasure that that you all talked about. And there's example so many examples of the other terms that are just kind of replaced and how they're all meant to take away power. There's also a term that I found really um, I always Bettina Love uses the term co-conspirator, which was helpful for me to think about as a white person. Like how can I address anti-black racism? How can I, you know, what, what role do I have in helping you think about it? There was a term in here I'd never seen before, neighbors with legitimacy, which was for non-Indigenous people. And I thought that was really profound because I don't know if I had a term that could allow me to rethink my identity. I mean, I understand settler and taking that responsibility, but like, what's the positive direction I can take as a settler, right, to be, I, I, as, as Bettina loves words, a co-conspirator is what I would have used. Now I can say neighbor with legitimacy and aspire to that. So I guess my, besides finding that really a powerful frame, what advice do you have for educators based on this study about what they should do in schools, in states, in communities, in tribal nations to make this right and do better? So if I can give a shout out to Gisa Tonamuk, who is the brilliant and wise person behind that phrase. He is part of the Upstander Project and was one of the leaders of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Maine. And it's featured in the documentary Dawnland by by Upstander. And I love that phrase because part of it is the responsibility to learn and the responsibility the responsibility of of settlers and non-indigenous people's living here to learn how we how we all came to be here and the impact of of the creation of the United States and the replications of settler colonialism from history through today so that tomorrow and the futures can be better and honor indigenous peoples and nationhood and sovereignty and the other aspect of that and then I, I'm such a big fan of, of Gisa Tanamok. I was just on Zoom with him today, is really thinking about what what he refers to as the view from the boat and the view from the shore. So the way uh, the ways that the narratives of the United States are presented, the settler being the view from the boat and indigenous people's experiences and voices being the view from the shore. And so much of our curriculum can has has always been and continues to center always the view from the boat and working to recognize that so then we can unlearn and become become partners alongside indigenous peoples and and take their lead you know follow their lead to do better and change i can say if i can give you props sarah one of the things that you told me one time is i had never heard the term turtle island i think you were the first person to ever use it in front of me and when I was working with one of our teacher candidates to redesign a lesson and they said, you know, I always ask them if I can come into their classrooms and teach with co-teach with them and stuff like that. And everyone's very like, you know, 
they, they it's hard to get into classrooms because right everyone's really busy with stuff and i've and i finally was able and they said what's the topic and they said the 13 colonies and i said well what do you want us to do on that and they said whatever you want and so the entire lesson we just talked about what colonization was but we started by using the term turtle island and looking at a unfamiliar mapping of the land that was not the traditional north south you know mapping with all the political boundaries that were there and so we just didn't even spend we didn't even talk about those western constructions for the first like 25 minutes of the lesson and i did would never have thought of that except i was reoriented by you pointing out oh yeah this this name america got layered over all of this it is the i guess what you would say the view from the boat which is so prevalent and so i really appreciate you helping me with that because it helped me do a better job of thinking where do i start and it certainly can't be with the view from the boat it has to be with the view from the store from the shore i love that phrasing thank you for sharing that i've used the phrase you know that curriculum often faces east that comes from this book facing east in indian country by richter and and facing west but i really appreciate that so thinking about that the view from the boat and the view from the shore i think another thing I would add to that when we're talking about implications for educators is too often standards and the accompanying curriculum centers settler children. And it does not center the needs and the experiences and the aspirations of Native children. And so if we think about Native children as our center in curriculum, it would be obvious that talking about their civic identities and their roles and responsibilities would be part of curriculum, right? When we place Native children at the center of what we're going to be teaching, that would just be part of that. And so thinking, you know, how can we center Native children? Because there are Native children in these classes, right? Like 90% of Native kiddos attend public schools. So there are Native children in these classrooms, in these states where crucial aspects of their identity, of their political realities, of their communities is missing. But then thinking about it, you know, even when we, when we think about educating non-Native children, civic education is incomplete if it doesn't attend to Indigenous nationhood and sovereignty. It's just bad civics. It's, it's, it's. You know, what's hard for me is that the things we're drawing attention to in this study are so old that they're tiresome within Indigenous studies. You know, we're drawing attention to the basics that people were talking about in 1800s and then the 1950s and then the 19... I mean, now there's whole debates within Indigenous studies about, for example, the politics of recognition. We don't take up that work because at a base level in education, we're still trying to get Native rights to be recognized and respected. And we don't talk about the rich conceptions of nationhood and sovereignty that na Native nations are actually seeking and envisioning and enacting for themselves. We're actually talking about very narrow political definitions of nationhood and sovereignty. Because at a base level, I feel like we have a responsibility as scholars to use our platform to kind of shift policy and practice. 
but we're missing so much. And it reminds me of Dr. Michelle Jacob, one of my mentors, when she talks about education, she says, oh, settler systems of educating are so young. They're so young in comparison to the ways indigenous communities and nations have always educated our own. And it makes me think of the irony is that tribes are viewed as primitive, right? Or, but, but tribal sovereignty predates the U.S. sovereignty. And it was Wilkins and, and Loma Waima who said, because tribes existed before the United States of America, theirs is a more mature sovereignty, right? And we, when we think of it in that light, there's so much we can learn from the ways that indigenous nations have expressed their sovereignty, have engaged in diplomacy, have related to one another, have shared territory, right? There's so much that we could learn from them, but they're not even in the equation when we look at these standards, right? So it's just civics education is incomplete when we don't draw attention to these crucial expressions of nationhood and sovereignty that, that you know, it's not just a benefit to us as Native people that we have that reflected in curriculum, but we as a supposedly democratic society could actually learn from Indigenous diplomacies. One of one of the like the tangible things that teachers can do while they're while they're listening to the podcast, they can through the Museum of the American Indian, the Smithsonian, they have pod they have web webinars and trainings for teachers all year long and have a really rich education section of the website that's got a just a beautiful support for teachers who want to learn more and do more and and attend. Uh, attend trainings. And similarly, so does Upstander Project has the Upstander Academy, which is a five-day intensive training. So like those are two things off the top of my head that are that are spaces and places that teachers can go for, for additional professional development, either in person or virtually. Jimmy, do you want to share advice you have for, for teachers coming out of this study? I think one of the challenges with what we're doing is we're deconstructing the, the the standards and they're by virtue of the state and the government, they're, they're official knowledge. So what we're doing is creating elbow room and official knowledge. And what isn't in official knowledge is the context that Leilani just spoke on, you know, contextualizing what sovereignty is. It's a mature. So at the risk of oversimplifying what one of the places my mind goes to when, when I, when I look at settler governments, I'm, I'm kind of a politics head, so I pay attention. The obsession with rights and individual rights. We're in that moment with everyone kind of needs to chip in with the pandemic right now, you know, just change our lifestyle a little bit. But the pushback is always on individual rights. And I couldn't imagine a tribal government operating that way. Um, it, 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 it's more about the responsibility. So if, if a teacher maybe wants to think like, wow, how do I even, it, it could be having or talking through with students the nuances of what our government is up to and, and what tribal governments are up to. Tribal governments are responsible. It's more about responsibility to land and one another and to ancestors and to future generations. And there's an there's a, a inherent responsibility for indigenous folks that would be really helpful in this time of climate change and this time of political upheaval. If we, if we just could teach young people, what does it mean to be responsible? And, 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 and responsibility can't mean I need to uphold my individual rights because I, I know that's how the conversation gets twisted. 
say, well, uh, I need to be active in civics, uh, an American citizen. I need to be an active, engaged American citizen because our rights get, get encroached upon. Your rights um, come at the expense or the cost of nature <laughs> comes at the expense of future generations of water. Of, uh, you can go in many different directions. So I think just unsettling the concept of individual rights, shoot, you, you can spend an entire fifth grade year doing that work. I, I think too, that we need to name a responsibility of higher education and teacher teacher educations and schools of ed to be better partners in this and create meaningful relationships with with tribal nations and open pathways for for indigenous peoples to become teachers and nurture that and also hire indigenous faculty to teach classes and and bring this into schools of ed and teacher preparation programs so that when teachers get into the classroom you know they're they're not also shouldering having to also you know relearn unlearn and and that is part of our jobs but that universities we need to be alongside this effort i think is a big a big piece and create spaces where where indigenous faculty and students want to stay right i always find that is such a part of it right because so mm -hmm. often um, we bring uh, some faculty you know, I guess to, to use Bell Hooks term, right, um, eating the other, they bring them into the into the fold and check a box, but don't create spaces that are really affirming and where the faculty are being neighbors with legitimacy, which is my new term I'm going to use now. Leilani, Sarah, and Jimmy, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. So where can our listeners find you or your work online? I'm on Twitter and that's a great place to connect with me. I also have a website. If you just, if you Google me, I, I try to update it. I, I should be better at that, but that's always a great place to connect. If there's any resources and things, I'm always happy to share. This is Leilani. I'll put my faculty webpage in the show notes and I'm on Twitter at Leilani Sabs. This is Jimmy and I I'm off of the social medias right now while I'm trying to finish the dissertation because it's too easy of a distraction, but you can find me in the College of Ed at the University of Oregon. I'm trying to get off social media. I've got it down to Twitter and I haven't been able to break loose of that one, but I, I aspire to do that, Jimmy. I have to hit- I'm coming to... off of sugar or something. <laughs> you would miss our, our uh, DMs about uh, Marvel stuff then. That's no, I'm looking forward to this summer because I'm getting back on. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, so everyone look forward to that. The reemergence of Jimmy on the social media spaces this summer. We're gonna have a we're gonna have like an event for that to relaunch relaunch your social media accounts. <laughs> I'm quiet on there too. I don't I don't ever post. I just read. <laughs> Well, we are so appreciative of you all for joining us on this podcast. And thank you so much. And we certainly hope to continue the discussion online and in other spaces. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We're happy to have you to be here. At the Visions of Education podcast, we are all about sharing the learning. If you're doing something fun and creative in education or you just want to chat, maybe you want to pat on the back or just uh, to say hi. We're there at Visions of Ed. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Visions of Ed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and anywhere you'd like us to be. And if you write us a five-star review, uh, we will read it on the air. I'm not sure what the quant crit analysis of five-star reviews would be, but it would probably 
be a problematic aspect of the corporate algorithm. We would like to thank Zach Seitz of Wiley High School and the University of North Texas for his editing skills. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Dan Kretka. And I'm at 42 Pink Peace. Until next time, this is the Visions of Education podcast. Signing off.